really thrilled. I think you're all here probably because at some level you're enthusiasts for reading aloud or maybe you have a, a, some of the sneaking zealotry that I myself have on this topic. And, and I'm delighted to be able to evangelize to people of a, of a similar view. And I hope that um, if you're not already a zealot, by the time you leave here this evening you will be, and you will go out and want to spread the good news of reading aloud to the people in your life, to your children if you have them, to other children that you may know who are not in your family, and indeed to some of the older people in your life, um, perhaps your parents, perhaps your grandparents if they're alive. Um, because this is the CIC, I thought you might be interested in hearing something of why this book, how this book uh, came to be. Um, it comes from 24 years of reading aloud to my own children and my work experience of writing for the Wall Street Journal about children's books. But it also comes from a kind of sort of a dark cultural place a few years ago. Um, a book won the Carnegie Medal in 2014. It was um, uh, a young adult novel, extremely dark, extremely uh, grim, uh, unforgiving, unflinching, no happy ending. Uh, and I was lying in bed. This would have been for pretty soon after the book had won the award. Um, and I was lying in bed thinking, this is just so awful. You know, I, as a book critic, I see a lot of books that come through, and there are lots of wonderful, uplifting, engaging, you know, creative, magnificent works of literature that are being created. But there is also some dark stuff that is dark in a, in a specific way. And uh, so there I was lying in bed thinking, ah, you know, just I feel so bad about this book. Why is it that a book like this should be celebrated? Why is this what we're giving children? Why is this a good idea? So bleak. And, um, you know, in, in that sort of musing way, I thought, well, you know, what, what can I do? What is the opposite of that? What is the thing that is not that bleak worldview? And boom, into my mind came from the muse, perhaps from somewhere else, reading aloud. Like that was the single most nourishing, beautiful, sustaining, imagination-triggering, sort of delightful way that I'd spent time in, with, my, with my children in the, in the previous 20 years. And I thought, you know, there's something to be said here. There's something, this is not just, it's not just a, a fun thing to do. There's a kind of generative quality to it. There's something extraordinary going on. I mean, I always felt when I was reading to my children that something big was happening. I didn't know what it was, and obviously sometimes it's kind of tedious and you're kind of tired and you don't really want to be doing it. But, you know, there was this overlay of, of almost a transcendence. And so out of that epiphany, as it were, in bed that night, worrying about one young adult novel and thinking, what can I do? What is better? Um, came the idea to write an article for the Wall Street Journal. And in the summer of 2015, that article came out. It was called The Great Gift of Reading Aloud. And something very interesting happened. I, you know, have, I've had a couple of viral articles, shall we say, this one was very, very unusual, that is to say the response. It was 100% positive. Tens of thousands of people were sharing this article back and forth. And I thought, that's something. You know, there's a hunger, there's a need. People are recognizing something's off. They want some sort of, some more beauty, more restorative, more, uh, just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's some in some way to... Um, to, to move to a more beautiful place than the one we're in. So, hence came out of that this book. Um, in The Enchanted Hour, the antagonist is not actually any particular young adult novel, and it's not the big bad wolf, um, and it's not even any other diabolical presence, but it is, the, the, the antagonist here is technology, right? Because what is the thing that is getting in the way of all of our lives? I mean. We are, all of us, I think, benefiting from the ease and convenience of our phones, our tablets, our screens and things, but at the same time, we're all kind of grappling with keeping these influences under control. Um, and I posit in this book that, essentially, that reading aloud as a daily practice is a kind of cure to what's ailing us. It's a cultural cure to what ails us, and it's a cure to what's ailing us technologically. Um, point by point, the, um, an enchanted hour, shall we say, or an enchanted 20 minutes, has a way of replenishing the things that our technology is drawing away from us. And, you know, family by family, story by story, I think we can really, we can do something very, very good for ourselves, 
for our families and for our culture by taking up this practice. Um, so what are the things that technology is doing to us? Well, one of the things it's doing, it is atomizing our families. Um, maybe many of you have that experience where you come home at the end of the day and everyone maybe says a brief hello and then people sort of separate, right? To their own technology, to their own, to their own screens, to whatever. You know, there's not um, necessarily, unless you have a family where there's a wonderful you know, family dinner or whatever, there's not necessarily a time when everyone comes together and actually engages in a very warm way with one another. Um, reading aloud, of course, is the antidote to that. It brings people together in warm physical proximity and, uh, and allows us to meet on the grounds of literature and enjoy beautiful language and beautiful images and interesting characters and at the same time be developing our relationships with one another. You know, we are social animals. We need physiological contact with other people. It's very regulating for us. There's a lot of science in the book about this and how important it is in particular for children to have warm, cozy time. It's not, it's not just for the you know, emotional pleasure that we get. It's a deeply rewarding kind of on the hormonal level for us to sit together and be close together. When a parent and child sit together with a book, stress hormones diminish and bonding hormones increase. So there's actually something that's already taking place just for the act of sitting down, making that little sacrifice of time. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, our technology is very, um, it's very, well, it can be a lot of fun, right? But it doesn't help your vocabulary. It doesn't, what most of us are not engaging with our, with our screens in long-form narrative. I mean, I guess there are those who do read their, their own, you know, might, you can actually read this on a Kindle, so and I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing that. But, um, but, you know, if you're anything like me, shall we say, it's a lot of click, 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 right? Very, very quick changing from one thing to another. And, uh, and sitting down with a novel and just experiencing the words one by one as the author wrote them is fantastically good for, um, for it, in the case of children when they're listening, for their grasp of vocabulary, for their, uh, you know, the acquiring of mastery over the English language, if that's the language you're reading in, uh, the, the grammar, the, the, uh, the syntax. Vocabulary also is something very interesting. We, all of us, as you probably will think if you consult your own self, we all of us know far more words than we would use in our everyday conversation. And one of the beautiful things about reading to children is that you can introduce to them texts that they would never in a million years be able to read to themselves, but that they can enter effortlessly through the medium of their own ears. So, uh, so, that's, so, it's, so again, reading aloud with children in the home context is very, very good for developing language. Um, it's also... It's quite, quite extraordinary what's been going on now. There's the the uh, examinations of what happens in a child's brain when we read to them. A picture book turns out, some of you may have seen a recent article I had on this, uh, a picture book turns out to be just about the most useful tool you can imagine to engage a child's deep cognitive networks, get their, get their brains working at the deepest level, get all the different domains of the brain working. When a child watches, and when I say child in this case I'm talking about children say zero to five. They watch a video. Their brains register a huge amount of activity, a huge amount of visual activity, a lot of shock and awe. You know, the brain can see that, and of course it's mesmerizing. Maybe mm -hmm. because we're predators, right? Maybe naturally we're drawn to the flickering image. But the other brain networks don't get engaged. And when, when, a, when a kid is on a screen, it's just a kind of surface engagement. And when we sit with a picture book, the sound of the voice, the proximity of the warm body next to the child, and the pictures that don't jump around but give the child time to look and absorb and maybe even reflect. And it, you know, the brain works quickly, right? So you can reflect on something almost before you've realized it. And uh, so, it's, so you know, all of this takes place. Um, there's an example. Uh, the scientists I talked to in the book, actually doctors, use an expression they call picture books are... Um, there is a, a Goldilocks effect with picture books. So if, uh, if you just tell a story to a small child, it's a little too cold. 
they can follow the story but doesn't light up their brains. If you show them a video, it's too hot, right? It can't, they can't make sense of what they're seeing. They don't have time to reflect on what they're seeing. But if you sit with a picture book, it is, as Goldilocks did with the third bowl, just right. So there's that. Um, and uh, oh, hang on, I'm sorry, I've lost my place here. Ah, yes. And the, um, and the really important thing is that we are all losing our attention spans, right? They're getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter with technology. It's a widespread phenomenon, much observed. And um, for us as adults, you know, if we have a long attention span or not, that's really up to us to cultivate. We can probably fudge it if we don't, if we can't really pay attention very well. But with young people, they absolutely have to be able to pay attention if they're going to function in school. And they have to be able to pay attention. They have to be able to follow a thread of an argument. They have to understand words that are being said to them. In the early grades in particular, most instruction takes place orally. So if a child comes to school never having had stories read to him, never having adults, never having had adults spend considerable time engaging them in conversation. They're at a terrible disadvantage. And it's, and it's in a disadvantage that, um, whose effects are felt uh, for many years in the future, unfortunately. There's a fascinating study uh, out in Oregon that looked at the attention span persistence, as it's called, of four-year-olds. And uh, it's extraordinarily determinative, it seems. A four-year-old who can follow the thread of something, who can focus and pay attention. Those children, their achievement at that age in paying attention correlates with their math and science scores at age 21, uh, sorry, math and English scores at age 21, and also predicts whether or not they will graduate university by the age of 25. So there are real consequences if little children don't learn to pay attention. And one of the beautiful things about reading to them, of course, as many of you may know, is you sit down with a book, it's like a child magnet. You know, they'll come over and they'll squish in and they'll want, and they just want to, they want to be part of that strange magic that takes place, that transcendent experience. Um, and, you know, most of the science in this book pertains to children, because that's what everybody's interested in, right? We're all interested in, in children, and we, everyone wants to make interventions that do wonderful things for children later in their lives. But there is a chapter devoted to, and there is some science now, about the effect of reading aloud on the older brain. You know, the young developing brain is very plastic, growing like crazy. The older brain maybe hasn't been exercised quite as much as it could be. Um, and reading aloud is an extraordinary way to, uh, to kindle memory, to, um, to assist in uh, kind of speeding up sort of cognitive processes. Uh, there was one study in Japan of elderly adults who were given the task of actually doing the reading aloud, just reading a little bit of Japanese aloud every day for six months. And they reported, you know, diverse cognitive improvements. Um, and we've also seen there are some extraordinary things with elderly adults in uh, people who have dementia, Alzheimer's. You know, sometimes there's a kind of locked-in quality to that affliction. And there are, uh, uh, there are reading groups in which people have reported just suddenly a person who's been completely silent for weeks. Here's a poem. There's an instance in my book about a Longfellow poem that was read. And suddenly, it's as though the gate opens, and they're able to come out again for a little while and be themselves and remember things. And it's tremendously moving and beautiful. And so, you know, reading aloud as a, as a, as a lovely discipline, as a transcendent experience, is really just not confined to children. I mean, adults can read to each other. And uh, reading to our, you know, reading to our elders is, uh, is a, you know, an extremely lovely way to connect. I'll say something else about that, too, that one of the things that I think is very beautiful and helpful about a book as a medium for encounter is that, you know, there are lots of times in life when conversation is not easy. It might be, as a, I, there's an example of this here, when I, my son was 14. We didn't have a lot, of, lot in common in those years. Essentially, our conversation took this form. I would say, how was school? And he'd say, what's for dinner? Actually, he'd say, what's for dinner? <laughs> um, but what we had in common then was we had books. We were able to sit in the evenings 
and I would read to him, and we would meet on this middle ground. Um, and that's, you know, that's also true if people are in, you know, in hospice. I mean, a lot of our conversation is tremendously forward-looking, right? You know, oh, what are you going to do next week? Where are you guys going? Or what are you thinking about this? Or I'm really looking forward to doing that. But if you're with someone whose future is foreshortened, there isn't a future to talk about, what do you talk about? One of the gorgeous things you can do is you can actually read with that person. And um, there's a story in my family, actually. I, I, one of my uh, relations, her mother was dying very, very slowly for a very, very long time in hospice. And uh, she had retreated back to her native language, which was German, and also retreated in a kind of way she held a baby doll. And, you know, was it was not possible to find any subject that could really be talked about anymore. She wasn't really talking anymore. And so this relative of mine decided, on my urging, very happy about this, to uh, read to her mother. And she, brought, she found a, um, a, it was a German book that had, um, it was a baby development book, basically. So on, on, the one, well, on the one side, on the left-hand side page, was what is happening in mommy's body. And on the right-hand page was what's happening in baby's body. And she said that she went into the hospice where the, her mother had been lying unresponsive for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, holding the baby. And she began to read, and something happened. There was a kind of radiance. She smiled. She connected. And again, it was this extraordinary encounter that would maybe not have been possible without the medium of a book. So, I mean, there are just so many beautiful possibilities for the whole thing, um, uh, the, whole, the whole practice of reading aloud. And what, just one other thing about this, and then I'm going to read you just a little passage, if you will indulge me. Um, especially later in life, you know, those years can be lonely for people. Uh, people who are living alone, who are living in, uh, you know, institutions of one kind or another, you know, often their ability to engage with others is not uh, very intimate, shall we say. It's, you know, it's... Uh, it's transactional, it's hierarchical, it's Mrs. Smith, we're going to move you to this bed now kind of thing. Um, and, you know, older people, just like young people, need the physiological comfort of other people and engagement with other people. And so I really do think that it would be an act of great loveliness. Of, you know, if, if we think not only let's read to the kids in our lives, but let's read to the older people in our lives, you know? Let's bring that beautiful thing to them and assuage some of what can be the loneliness of that time. Right, now I've got you where I want you. We're going to start on page one, and we're going to the end. No. Um, what I would like to do, if you don't mind, is read to you the afterword, the peroration here, which I have to say, so kind of interesting. I have, I have recorded the audio book for this, so if anyone wants to listen to this book, it can be, you can get it on Audible. Um, one of the things I discovered is that I put an inordinate number of proper nouns into this book. And, um, and some of them are, are quite tricky to say. So I will, I will I do my absolute best here to pull this off. In The Little Prince, a desert fox confides a secret to the small visitor from asteroid B612, which he in turn tells the author, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It has become the most famous quotation from that famous book. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Walking in the bleak, beautiful desert with the little prince, Saint-Exupéry is astonished by a sudden understanding, he tells us. When I was a little boy, I lived in an old house, and legend told us that a treasure was buried there. To be sure, no one had ever known how to find it. Perhaps no one had even ever looked for it. But it cast an enchantment over the house. My home was hiding a secret in the depths of its heart. Yes, I said to the little prince, the house, the stars, the desert, what gives them their beauty is something that is invisible. What is essential is invisible to the eye. It seems to me that the promise and treasure of reading aloud is a lot like that. As spectacle, it's dull. There is a grown-up sitting with a child or two, or perhaps a uh, half, uh, or perhaps with a half dozen other grown-ups at two round tables. There is a book, or a stack of them, or a sheaf of photocopied poems. There is a clock and a bit of time. There is the human voice reading. There are human ears listening. What makes the experience beautiful and essential, 
the richness of the emotional exchange, the kindling of the mind, the voyaging in imagination, the sharing of culture and pathos and humor is invisible to the eye. Yet its effects can be seen, and they are lovely. We live in a time of immense complexity, dizzying and dazzling sophistication that would seem to make a mockery of simpler time, uh, places, sorry, ways and things. Yet there is magic in simplicity. Flour and water and yeast make bread. Pen and paper and imagination make a portrait, a landscape, a novel. Two people and a book together make an experience of force and significance out of all proportion to the time it takes. When the writer and illustrator Anna Dudney knew that brain cancer was taking her early from this world, she asked that in lieu of a funeral or a memorial service, her friends and the people who loved her book, books would read to a child. She knew what was essential. In a piece for the Wall Street Journal's Speakeasy blog, she wrote, when we read with a child, we are doing so much more than teaching him to read or instilling in her a love of language. We are doing something that I believe is just as powerful, and it is something that we are losing as a culture. By reading with a child, we are teaching that child to be human. Reading aloud is a small thing, yet profound. To read to someone you love is the simplest of gifts and one of the greatest. All that is required for a long, happy string of enchanted hours is for someone to take the trouble to make it happen. Surely that is something we can aspire to do with love. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Um, kind of a question and a half. Um, the first part is, um, what is uh, what has been your favorite book to read aloud? Um, and then kind of tagged onto that, um, just more of the idea of uh, storytelling. If you've heard of Jim Weiss, um, who he was, uh, tells a lot of children's stories, um, but he kind of takes a lot of old tales and retells them. And his emphasis is kind of on the, um, the audible experience of storytelling, which I think kind of ties into reading out loud. Um, so kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I really admire storytellers. I I'm not a natural myself, but I, um, I, I think it's a wonderful thing. I mean, and unfortunately, of course, because most of us or many of us are not great storytellers, we, you know, it's very useful to us to have authors who've done the work for us that we can just, you know, bring their words into the world. Okay, so favorite books to read aloud. I would say for pure ham purposes, like for doing goofy accents and things, there's just nothing like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's just it's just so much fun. In fact, I thought about bringing it tonight, and then I thought, nah, it's okay. I get a little carried away. I love to do Charlie, uh, sorry, Willy Wonka with a German accent, you know? Uh, it's uh, great fun. Um, and then it's, uh, I, and my other favorite book to read aloud, one we read, we've read sort of every couple of years in our family, is Treasure Island. I just think it's, uh, it's just the most, it's wonderful, rich, dense, beautiful writing, fantastically exciting story. Um, you know, I mean, nowadays everyone's very sort of, uh, um, concerned with the gender balance in novels, and one of the things I like about it, there are no women in it. It's just a, it's just a good adventure story, and nobody's worrying about checking off any, you know. And my girls loved it just as much as my son, so that would I would say those two books are my favorite to read aloud. I've noticed in my own experience, if I'm reading a diff- difficult science article, if I read it aloud, it becomes clearer. Um, and I'm fortunate enough, a product of Vatican II, that I lecture at mass. And if I read before Mass, about the fourth or fifth time, the scripture becomes alive. So my question is, do you allow your young readers to start reading the books? I mean, do you have, in a sense, I mean, my children are, are older, but we would, sometimes I would read, and then I would have them read. Yeah. And, and I think it enriches the experience experience. I don't know if that's in your book or would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people do find that very, um, very rewarding. Um, you know, we didn't, I, I, here's the truth of it. I didn't know I was going to write this book all these years. So if I, if I had, there are a lot of things I think I would have tried and experimented with to see what I thought of them. Um, but yes, I, two things. One is I absolutely agree with you about reading the gospel. It's unbelievably convicting and powerful. And in fact, was you know, most writing, in fact, till the 10th century, I believe it is, uh, all writing was meant to be read aloud. You know, the, the, the word, in fact, you know, contra Emily Dickinson, it was only considered to be alive 
if it was spoken. If it was just on the page, it was just a dead thing. You know, what, what's the use of that dead thing on these marks on the page? Um, uh, and uh, no, to your point about getting children to read aloud, I, I do think that that is probably an extremely good idea. There was a um, there was a, a Roman doctor in the second century who actually prescribed lyric poetry as a as a health giving tonic to his patients. Um, it, and, and I would say that those of us who love to read aloud, and perhaps you sound like you might be in this number, it is really mostly, it's the most fun that you can have that's, you know, it's completely free and you can do it in any kind of clothing. Oh, I was uh, wondering if you could comment, uh, is there any uh, relationship between children who are read to and their ability to write uh, fiction, when, they, when they're asked to write stories in school, I always felt like my daughter could do that because she knew it was how it was supposed to sound. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there's a very, I mean, the, 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 child, the, read aloud, the, the child who has been read aloud to understands story structure in a way that children who haven't just don't. They understand grammar and syntax. They understand vocabulary. They understand about excitement and, you know, climactic scenes. Um, I hear this from teachers. They can always spot the children who've been read to, um, you know. And and the shame of it is, of course, that they can. In other words, that there's such a gulf between those who have access to the beauty of, you know, the canon of English literature and those who don't. And by canon, I include lots of children's books in that, right? I mean, even Goodnight Moon, there's a lot that goes on in even a very simple text. And... Um, yeah, and it's a grievous thing, frankly, that, that so many children are growing up without it. I mean, there's a, there's a children's book writer called Rosemary Wells who I talked to for this book, and she's a great supporter of the project and a wonderful evangelizer herself for reading aloud. And her line is, if everyone read to their children, we could, we could uh, what was the expression? We could narrow the achievement gap without spending another dime. And there's truth to that. Um, I would just like to echo some of what you said because I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center for 27 years, and our population uh, is a lower socioeconomic group, uh, many of which are functionally illiterate. And so when uh, th their understanding of the English, wor English words and their ability to create sentences uh, and explain themselves is um, very hampered because of that lack of literacy. And I think probably and that maybe they never got read aloud to. Yeah. I, my, I don't know. But I know my, my teacher friends all say you can tell when, when the kids have been read aloud to. You know, and one of the things that, that is so beautiful about it as well, about reading aloud, um, especially if children struggle. And I keep saying children, but you, know, you all know I don't just mean children. I mean people, right? Uh, in a, in a room, let's say your average classroom, even at a very competitive school, you're going to have some students who are really streets ahead and some who struggle. You know, decoding, as, as, as you know, the neurobiologist Marianne Wolf says, our brains were never meant to read. It's a, it's a lot for the human brain to learn how to make sense of those marks on the page. Um, and one of the beautiful things about reading to a mixed level group of people is that everybody gets it at the same time with the same comprehension, pretty much. Again, stipulating that we all understand more words than we can say or use. So context will tell the struggling kids what the more adept kids might know automatically. And so every, there's a wonderful, not, not so much a leveling effect as an uplifting effect. Um, and it's, you know, uh, there, are, there are some educators who are really, you know, trying very hard to try and spread this particular aspect of the gospel. Um, it's not an extraneous thing to do. It's not a, just a mere entertainment to read to a mixed group of kids. It's actually immensely helpful and gives, you know, sucker to those kids who would never, ever, ever be able to struggle through, you know, The Outsiders or Fahrenheit 51 or whatever novel they happen to be teaching, you know, on their own. They could never get any fun out of it because they'd be grappling with a sentence and forget what the f beginning was by the time they get to the end of it. You read it out loud and they're free, right? It's beautiful. I just want to make one other comment. I'm in a French conversation group, and gratefully, um, I'm the least fluent of everybody, and which, um, and we all have to make a little presentation. And so I, uh, you know, I have to, I have to be able to speak. But more, more than my speaking, I have to listen to everybody else. And it's been amazing how much more I've learned to comprehend 
um, and to just pick up the words a lot faster just from listening, and that's only every other week that we meet. Yeah, yeah, no, that's and right. So that's right, because we are, in fact, designed to hear. Right. I mean, speech is natural to us, and hearing is natural to us. Yeah. Reading and writing, that is so unnatural. It's an unnatural practice. We, we, we read aloud to each other, and it, I think it's a really nice thing. Yeah, I've been hearing from a lot of people. I mean, I, lo- I love it. It's great. You know, let's, let's spread the love. I mean, I just heard from a fellow the other day who wrote me, and he said... Um, he said he and his wife have taken up reading aloud, and they've, and they've been married for 40 years or something, and they've never felt closer because there is this just extraordinary, look at how happy they are. <laughs> but there is this lovely bonding that takes place. I thought it was yeah. about private secrets. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> what would be your recommendation for those with younger kids who are very energetic? Um, is there an age that's better to start reading aloud to them? If, I mean, if the kid's not going to sit down and listen, are they still getting that type of enrichment? Yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Even if they're running around and it doesn't look like they're paying yeah, attention. Yeah, yeah, the best time to start reading to a child is right away. Uh, ideally, I actually think that, especially if, you have, if you're not a natural ham and you're not, you don't like acting out things, start reading before the baby comes because, you know, then you'll get over that sort of momentary weirdness of starting to read aloud and hearing your own voice and, you know, sounding peculiar to you. Um, but yes, as far as children who run around are concerned, absolutely. I, um, I'm a great believer in letting children, you know, uh, within reason, obviously, just, just mill around if they need to. You know, some children will want to sit on a lap, right, cuddle right up close and be right next to you. And some just don't want to be touched that much, right? But people are, you know, children are people, right? They, they, they have different preferences. Some will want to sit on the floor and play with Lego or something, right, or some toy, and I, you know, I think that it is sometimes interpreted by adults as rejection if a child doesn't want to sit and be that snugged up. You know, oh, I see you're not paying attention to the story. Well, I, why will I bother kind of thing? I've actually seen that happen. And uh, it's regrettable because um, they, a child can still, still be achieving enormous benefits from the, from the listening experience, even if they're not, you know, sitting in the dutiful, you know, suitable for 19th century portraiture manner while someone is reading to them. What's your opinion about the difference between listening to someone read aloud and listening to an audiobook or podcast? I'm I'm thinking about adults in particular and yeah. curious if you have a, an opinion about that or encountered any research about that. Yeah, I have and I do and um I love audiobooks. I am not here to do down audiobooks at all. Um, no, I think they're fantastic. I, my husband will tell you that he, they have transformed his life. He's now he's deep into so much classic literature. It's not even funny. I hear it constantly going in the house when I'm when he's there, um, and uh, and no, and I think I think audiobooks are you know a fantastic way, uh, particularly for adults to catch up on things they might not have read before or to revisit old beloved books when you obviously can't you can't always have the luxury of time sitting there, but if what uh, I'll say that uh, it's uh, audiobooks, while wonderful, still come a little slight second to the the live reading aloud experience for the reasons that I mentioned, right? The the bonding and the also reading aloud when it's you know when it's done well in a, in a kind of cozy environment, it's a little like a, a fugitive work of art, you know, like a like a ballerina on stage. She does her move and it's done. Or live music, someone plays the notes and then they just they're gone, but it's ha- but something has happened, and so in that sense, it's a more it's a richer I think exchange certainly reading aloud with some, with another person, but you know you can't you can't have everything, and and audiobooks are wonderful uh, as well for that, and actually I've found very just lately, one of the things I found very interesting is I will sometimes get an audiobook and then also get the printed book and go back and forth between the two, and um, if it's a really beautifully written thing, you know you you get the you know, you get the the beauty of the language is kind of released in different ways. The sound of a word is not necessarily the same kind of, I can't say tactile, what is it? So same sort of pleasure as the look of a word, but they each give a kind of pleasure. So I, I highly recommend that, by the way. And there's a, I interviewed a guy who's written the history of the audiobook, and he told me that um, our brains are not very good at remembering which way they heard a story. So that if someone toggles between the print edition and the audio edition, as I do, and presumably this would work also with the read-out-loud edition, um, you just remember the story. You remember the language, but you don't know where you saw which bit. Kind of interesting.
Um, I'm, I teach middle school literature, and I was curious if, because most of what you've talked about is for younger children, and I was curious if within your research, like with the older children, and also specifically in teaching, what you've seen about reading aloud in that context. Yeah, well, I'll refer back to my earlier remarks just about the, uh, you know, about the efficacy, especially in like middle school classes, of reading a single text to the whole crowd. I'm sure you've seen that, right? You've got strugglers and you have the adept, and, and it's a way for everybody to just appreciate the beauty of writing and the beauty of literature. And the excitement of a story, too. Like, let's not forget that. Like, the, 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 the conjuring of scenes in your head, I mean, that's tremendously um, good for children. It's good, it's good for all of us, really, you know, creating things in our heads rather than just seeing them on the screen. Um, yeah, and reading, reading to groups. So, of course, my own, I don't have any kind of academic background like you, um, but I found it was very interesting to see the effect over the years of reading Treasure Island in particular, I talk about it in here, um, reading a very advanced text to children who were just about there, who could just about follow it, but then in the room were children who were younger. And what, what I found was that, I mean, I'm absolutely convinced that their experience of it became deeper and deeper and deeper each time. So let's say we started, we read Treasure Island the first time when my eldest was eight and the next one down was six. He didn't really, I mean, there wasn't, I, I guess he was probably following some of it and kind of excited. She was hanging on every word. The next time we read it, he was eight. And um, it's a kind of amusing scene. Uh, he was practically, he was like, bursting with excitement. He was practically exploding when we got to the exciting scenes of the book. And I think that, you know, he had some kind of fugitive memory of having read it before, a kind of sense of ownership of the story. And, you know, and again, I've seen this sort of over the years, uh, ex exposing children at different ages to the same text. It's been, ex you know, very, given them a very powerful um, uh, experience and also a sense of almost loyalty to the story, to the characters. You know, they're part of our family, these Long John Silver, especially. I mean, what a great villain that guy is. Just the best. His, his shine, pink, shining, ham-like face, I think is how Stevenson describes him. Hi. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I don't know if you encountered this in your research at all, but I was wondering if you'd comment on the difference between reading fiction to children and then reading something that's more nonfiction. If there's a similar effect still. You know, I, I actually, I have to say, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I think that... Uh, I think that might, that's that's probably one for your academics because, you know, uh, we as as we know, some people you know children learn some children learn better orally, some children learn better visually, um, and uh, when I think of nonfiction, I think of you know numbers and things like that. I know my own experience of listening to nonfiction. Um, it's I'm perfectly capable of understanding everything, but when so I read a very very grueling book called Bloodlands, which is about the history of Eastern Europe between. Stalin and uh, Hitler, and it's a, 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 num a book which tabulates the terrible, terrible loss of life. But terrible, terrible loss of life tabulated is numbers, and it was very difficult to keep track of 200,322 you know, 200, million. You know, you, you didn't, when, when someone's reading a number, you don't know when the number's going to end. So it was very difficult, I found, for my mind to kind of cling to these things. I had to go and look at the real book. Um, but so so I don't know the answer to that. I would say um, I, I would say also though that in the same sense that fiction out loud allows us to relax into the story and not we don't have to put out any effort to take in a story. I would say if it's well written nonfiction that would work the same way. You know, it sort of stands to reason. But I couldn't speak you know for sure on that. Thank you very much. Um, thing that comes to mind because for the past several years I've primarily been reading poetry, and I read it aloud to myself. Yes. Because um, the main thing I want to hear is the rhyme and the meter and, and such. Do you t address reading aloud to yourself when you don't have other people around? You know, I, I don't, actually. But um, I, it, interestingly, uh, the re book was reviewed by a woman uh, who writes for the Sunday Times in, in London, and she was, like you, one of these secret read-aloud zealots who reads to herself. And, um, and I was so inspired by her example, actually, that I have been reading aloud to myself as well. Um, and I, uh, I think it's, it's quite wonderful. It's quite extraordinary. And you do, and in fact, it, I mean, it hadn't occurred to me that I could get the pleasure of it without having people there, you know, either under sufferance or happily listening to me read. 
Um, a friend of mine says, uh, reading aloud, if people will let you do it, is the, is the most fun you can have. And uh, there is that, that proviso, if they will let you do it. But I guess you found a way around that. <laughs> do you do it in public, or do you read it? Uh, like, I'll go to a bookshop, and if you're browsing mostly, you'll just walk up and down the aisle. Yeah. That's great. That, you know what? This is the era where people are wearing weird little headpieces and talking to themselves all the time. No no one looks out of place doing that anymore. I spent the, I spent the bus ride from D.C. to New York yeah. trying to memorize a poem about a bottom, so uh, I was just reading it aloud over and over again. And, and all the seats around you were empty. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you're reminding me of something, because I did, uh, there was a, there was a, you know, this is my first book, and so I, I it went through a lot of incarnations, and um, and I'm, I, I'm now remembering things that, that had been in earlier versions, and I'd cut them out, and I'm like, oh, come back. There was a time when um, I, I was, uh, was at the airport with um, a girl, one of our daughters, who was, I think, probably t 13 at the time, and her plane was delayed. She was going off to a summer camp, and uh, and I just wanted to, I was in the early stages of my zeal for writing this, and I thought, I just want to do, I want to engage with her in some bigger way. So for some reason, this turned into me calling up the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner on my cell phone, and like like leaning over and, and reading her the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, sitting in, the, like, waiting for Air Canada, I mean, just as such a, and, and she was, she took it very well. She kind of really enjoyed it, but I hadn't, it's an enormously long poem, and I hadn't finished it by the time she was had to board. And um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience of being in an airport where you drop somebody off and then you walk back through the airport, so you're not actually traveling yourself. You're kind of the lone salmon going in the wrong direction as the stream is coming towards you. And I was, I was so, you know, thrilled and convicted by this experience of reading uh, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner that I kept going. And I was declaiming, walking down, the, you know, the cleaning people were walking past me a little <laughs> bit. But it was very, it was quite exhilarating, yeah. So I think actually that's something we, we all should we all should consider doing. I was going to follow on the last two comments. It seems from what you're saying that the ultimate experience is comes from a story being read aloud that includes a sustained narrative. So that as a you know your youngest child is obviously not going to be capable of that. They'd be capable of having you know understanding repetitious sounds and things of that nature. So I, I guess maybe more so than narrative, because often poetry doesn't have narrative, it may have few images that are seem disconnected, that it's a matter of evoking the emotional response and connection that's appropriate to the listener. For sure. And so that it would vary. I was thinking earlier, you know, as if you had a child that was preschool, you would want to be listening to, you know, some of the um, stories that you would be reading might be, in fact, short narratives. Others may just be, you know, like Dr. Seuss, which is just seems to be rhymes and images, but something that they can engage with and their ears trained for meter and, and all of those things. And I think, you know, I wouldn't want to have anyone feel discouraged that if they didn't have a child that was all ready to sit down and listen to lengthy chapter books right. or wasn't the child that was ready for one of those books where they could write their own ending at the end of the chapter or change what the ending was, that they were somehow missing from the experience of reading. Yeah. yeah. And then I was just going to offer that for, for me, as a parent, I'm very surprised that Winnie the Pooh has actually been one of my f most fun experiences reading aloud for children, um, mostly because it has, it has imagery, has very slow-moving narrative, and has this kind of uh, quality about it that speaks on two levels. One to the, the one who's reading aloud to the child and then the child himself. And plus it has an incredible ability to evoke laughter, which is then I know that I've actually succeeded. Yes, so. and, and it's funny, right? It's so funny, if, especially if you do the, um, if you do accents or you do funny voices. Just the personalities of the characters are so distinct. That you find. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think your point about not uh, making, uh, not creating any aura of intimidation about the whole experience is very important. I mean, it, you're absolutely right. You, what, what, I, what, what we used to do with, uh, when I had, you know, four little children together, is we would always read, you know, a few simple books first, picture books kind of thing. And then maybe, and the older children liked the picture books as well. And then we, and then then people might go and play with toys, and then I would take on the, you know, the longer narratives, and the little kids would just kind of would just be going around in the air around them, you know, but slowly, 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 form and meaning would take place, I think, from those sounds. Um, uh, but yeah, and not everything, you know, not everything works for everybody, and I think that's just fine. I mean, I, 
I make a terrible confession in this book, and I hope that you guys don't storm me when I say this, but we just never really enjoyed Tolkien very much. And uh, no one's storming. Phew, maybe there are more than, maybe there's more than just me. Yeah, some things are just, some things are just not that, I mean, the, the, I, the Hobbit worked really well, but uh, we found difficulty with some of the others. Um, yeah, in fact, and that's actually, uh, some of the things that, that are, that read very well aloud uh, tend to be a more kind of, oh, I want to say nutrient-rich writing, you know, more, uh, I mean, Winnie the Pooh is actually surprisingly nutrient-rich, you know, in, in terms of characterization and scenes and things. Um, but there, you know, I think that there are some chapter books that uh, are written for quick consumption by the eye and not really for the pleasure of, uh, the author, authors have not necessarily been careful with, to create something really very artistic with what, they, what they've written. Um, we have an online question. Following up on the middle school teacher's question, what is your opinion about reading historical fiction to teach content versus just enjoying the story for the sake of the story? Well, that's interesting. I would say that uh, you can read books for any purpose whatsoever. Do you know what I mean? I don't know that... Uh, I think it's a fine idea. I mean, just as we as, as, as adults might read historical fiction in order to enrich our understanding of a particular time period, um, why not do that with children? Um, it seems to me a good idea. And reading, I mean, really well-written history, of course, is like a wonderful story in itself. His story, even. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't see a distinction there. I think it, that uh, reading, for, um, reading for the enrichment of the mind and the heart and the spirit is the thing, it's the thing that it should be for. Um, I, I do think that uh, one of the things that is very, um, very fruitful about reading aloud in the home context is that uh, it, it's an opportunity for parents to supply things to their children that their schools might ne not necessarily be giving them. Um, and uh, you know, that might just be something as simple as Winnie the Pooh, which most American schools, I think, would probably not teach, or The Wind in the Willows, other wonderful stories. Um, and that's so, in other words, you read them to your children, and that makes it part of their arsenal of imagery and language and ideas, and just it, it's just something, another, you know, another notch in their belt. Um, but that can also be true of, of things like history books. You might want your children to be exposed to aspects of history that school might not ever consider teaching them. Or poetry, for instance. Poetry is, you know, sometimes I think that there's the complaint that poetry is relegated to too small a portion of children's lives. There's nonsense poetry. Everyone's into that right now in the younger grades. And that's fine. That's a lot of fun. But, you know, in terms of bringing them along to more uh, complex and sophisticated uh, poetry and prose. That's something you can do at home. And of course, I mean, that's, that's obvious, right? I mean, of course you can. But it's, sometimes we forget to take these opportunities in life. And um, doing it in a mindful way, another buzz phrase from now, um, is, you know, is all to the good. We have time for one, maybe two more questions. So it's great to read at home aloud, but um, either to yourself or if there's somebody else there. Do you know any places where you could go, any public forums where you could go and listen to people read a story or read out loud yourself to others? You know, um, in England, there is an amazing organization called The Reader. Uh, and it was founded by an academic from the University of Liverpool. I'm going to forget the year now. But um, if you buy the book, you can find out the year it was founded. Um, but she, what she wanted to do was actually to bring literature out of the ivory tower and down into the world of people who might have you know just just where people are where they where they live where they struggle where they suffer and so I was able to attend one of these reading groups they, they have uh, reading groups all over the UK and there are reading groups for teenagers and for foster kids and for stressed out caregivers and for Alzheimer's patients and the reading group that I sat in on was for Holocaust survivors in London and it was fantastic. Uh, we sat at two round tables. That was the allusion in the afterward to these two round tables. And, um, and uh, there was a, a reader who did the reading, and this is the protocol they have for these groups. And people come every week, and they experience the beauty of the word out loud, you know? And, uh, and, and they're, they're very popular, and they're very helpful. And, um, and I... I don't think of any. I don't. I don't know of anything in the United States that, that's anything like that. 
um, there was the reader had a they had a young woman from Montana who was um, over there in England and got the bug and came back to the states and wanted to try and start it. And I spoke to her a couple of years ago, and she, you know, it just it it just it isn't yet a thing here, I guess. But perhaps I'm ignorant of some enormous network that they certainly have story time for children, and that's then that's a great thing. Um, for those who don't have the skill of reading a book out loud where they can give the characters different accents, so it's like very distinct, you know, that's something that you can get through an audible um, author. Um, do you think the same benefit can be received if a family gathered around the living room and listened to an audible book where you had an experience? Um, reader versus someone in the family trying to read the book. I think it would be very enriching. Absolutely. I think I, you know. I think that would be. Uh, I think that would be great. I, in fact, um, no. I'm, I'm sure it would be great. Because then you get the physiological support, right? You get the common experience, the co the shared vocabulary, shared characters, shared scenes, shared experience. No, I think that would be that'd be a really good idea. And also, can I just say one more thing? Um, you know, it sometimes comes up. Uh, this idea that, uh, you know, it's easy for some people to read aloud, right? Because they're comfortable with the written word. They're comfortable with, with their, they've achieved a level, level of literacy in which there's no barrier to entry. Um, what about people who really are scared or can't read? And they have young children. They know they should read with their children. This is the particular context it seems to come up in. You know, aren't we asking too much of them to ask them to read aloud? And the truth of it is that the book, again, is the tool. It's the medium. It's the meeting point. And the, a lot of the incredible sort of value of reading aloud can actually be derived simply from interacting with any kind of text. It could be a magazine. It could be an, an, an illustration. You know, a parent who can't read or isn't comfortable with reading can engage a child in conversation, call it dialogic reading looking at the pictures, talking about the pictures, counting the number of bears, whatever that kind of thing is. So in fact, I mean, reading aloud, the benefits of reading aloud are available even if you're not actually reading. Thank you.